Hi, I'm Shannon Rice, the podcast producer here at C-SPAN. And on this week's Lectures in History, Puritanism and the Enlightenment Period. Princeton University scholar Alan Gelzo explains how these elements shaped religion, politics, and philosophy in colonial America. Class starts after this. All right, good morning, everyone. We are now beginning our second week of our first year seminar on contours of American thought. Last week, we spent some time setting up the architecture of the course, and then I talked for a, a, a comparatively short time, comparatively short compared to how sometimes I can talk under other circumstances, but comparatively short talking about the most remarkable intellectual beachhead that is made in American life in the early days of settlement of the North American continent, and that was the New England Puritans. Because the New England Puritans came here unlike any other settlement in North America, or for that matter, in almost any of the American continents. They came here as a conscious intellectual exercise. They came here for religious reasons, but they were religious reasons which had very strong intellectual structures to them. These Puritans wanted to found settlements. They wanted to found a colony, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but they also wanted to create a college. And that, of course, was Harvard College in the 1630s. And the kind of college that Harvard immediately set up to become was a college very similar to the colleges and universities that you would find in the Europe that they had left behind, which in England would either be Oxford or Cambridge, which on the continent might be the University of Paris, the University of Bologna, the University of Pisa. All across Europe, these colleges taught a curriculum in which the central part was the teaching of the six liberal arts. They were not teaching you technology, they were not teaching you sociology, they were not teaching anthropology, those things hadn't even been heard of. You were taught in the colleges and universities of 17th century Europe, you were taught the six liberal arts. And chief among those arts was the art of logic. Logic, the art, as they said, of discoursing well. Logic was how you discovered things. And the body that logic operated upon was authority. You did not, and here's the great difference between thinking of the 17th century and thinking in our time. And that is today, if we want to know something, we go to nature. Now, nature might be physical nature, it might be technological nature, but we go to nature. We go to something exterior to ourselves. And the method we use is experiment. And experiment will determine for us what we can know and what is true about what we're knowing. In the 17th century, you didn't do that. You did not go and experiment on nature. What you did was you applied logic to recognized authority. And that was what told you what was true. And this is the way the Harvard curriculum was structured in the 17th century. So the first contour of American thought that we encounter in the 17th century is a contour inherited 
from the European experience of centuries before. It's a college or university experience that I think it's safe to say almost none of us have ever encountered and probably never will encounter. But it had a life of its own and it had a certain rationale to it. And it was a curriculum that trained, above all, clergy for these Puritan churches, who then turned around and took those tools and put them into the life of their congregations. The Puritan sermon, and last week we were reading a number of these Puritan sermons from the 17th century, and they could be pretty hair-raising. But the thing that I wanted you most to see in these sermons was the operation of logic in them. A logic that took that three-part structure, doctrine, uses, applications, and put real life into it. Real life that in the 17th century was all about to change. And that's where I want to pick up with things today. For over 300 years, the dominant intellectual figure in European thinking was Aristotle. And you're thinking, Aristotle? Wait a minute. Aristotle had been dead for a good deal more than 300 years. And my answer to that inquiry is, yes, that's right. Nevertheless, Aristotle, an ancient Greek philosopher, a classical Greek philosopher, nevertheless, Aristotle is understood by Europeans in the later Middle Ages, into the Renaissance, and into the 17th century, as the authority. Thomas Aquinas will simply refer to Aristotle as the philosopher, as if there was no other philosopher worth taking into account. So the dominant intellectual figure is Aristotle, and especially the cream of Aristotle's writings. The Nicomachean Ethics, the Politics, and the physics. And this, this body of writings is the authority upon which the method of logic would operate in the training of the colleges and universities of those days. What kind of a world did Aristotle open up to people in these treatises? He opened up a world of hierarchies. It was an orderly world. It was a world with interlocking parts. It had the symmetry of a puzzle with all the pieces put together perfectly. And in these hierarchies, hierarchies which governed, first of all, the physical world, but also the political world, also the social world, also the religious world, these hierarchies described a universe that made sense, that operated without flim-flam, without mistakes. If you thought about the physical world, for instance, you saw orderliness and rank and order in it. In the Aristotelian understanding of the universe, you began by understanding that the physical universe was a hierarchy. At the very bottom was the Earth. The Earth was the center of the universe. But in saying the center, he wasn't trying to pay a compliment to the Earth. 
The Aristotelian worldview understood that the earth was at the center because the earth was base, elemental. The earth was full of things like grass, mud, earth itself. That was why the earth was at the center. Not because it was special, but because it wasn't. Because it was base. Now, you moved up from that. And what did you encounter as you moved up from that in the next level of the hierarchy? You would encounter the planets. And when you looked at the planets, what did you see when you looked up at the planets? You looked up and saw beautiful regularity. You looked up and saw the moon, for instance, and the moon was a perfectly round ball. That shows the moon had to be perfectly round because the moon was above the earth. It was superior to the earth. And if you moved above the realm of the planets, you would move up to the stars, and the stars moved in perfect order because the stars were even more perfect than the planets. And above the stars, there would be the heavens. And the heavens were still more perfect. The heavens were where spiritual beings existed, where God reigned. This was a universe of order. And in that universe, good things and bad things might happen, but they would happen in an orderly fashion and in order rela orderly relation to each other. Now, the same kind of orderliness and hierarchy that governed the physical world would also govern the political world. Because how was the political world rightly ordered? It was rightly ordered by a king at the top. And then below the king, there would be the nobles. And then below the nobles, there would be the commoners. And then below the commoners, there would be the peasants. Now, you might think, well, that's a pretty hard deal for the peasants. But no, you really shouldn't worry about it because peasants are born to be peasants. The life of a peasant comes naturally to a peasant. That's their place in this great hierarchy. And what's more, each level of that hierarchy has reciprocal obligations to the other. The king gets into a hard spot with another king. He calls on his nobility to assist him. The commoners get into difficult situations. If a harvest fails or a winter is severe, what do they do? They appeal to the nobility. Supply us with food. Supply us with fuel. And there's obligation all the way. Now, mind you, these hierarchies are fixed. The earth does not become a planet. The planets do not become stars. Likewise, peasants do not become commoners. Commoners do not become nobility. And nobility do not become kings. Uh, except in some eccentric circumstances, but those are eccentric. The normal order is the order of hierarchy. Hierarchy is what governs how people look at the world and the relationship they have to each other in the world. So the medieval universities that you would encounter, and Harvard really is one of them, it partakes of that same way of thinking, these medieval universities take Aristotle as the authority to describe this universe of hierarchies. And how do you understand it? By applying logic to it. Logic helps you to open up all the details about the hierarchies. Now, at the end of the last session, I did raise this slightly annoying question. And that is, what were universities 
in Catholic and Christian Europe doing, taking the authority of a pagan Greek as the starting point of their inquiries. And that posed some difficulty. There were times at which people made up interesting stories about how, well, Aristotle anticipated Christianity. Those were only really stories, though. Nobody really credited them deeply. No, instead, Catholic theologians, Catholic philosophers worked hard to make Aristotle and the church and the Bible compatible so that it will all work together in a seamless intellectual system. And this is what provided the basis of university and college life, and it provides the basis of what we find making this landfall in New England in the 1630s. And it all begins to crack. Because if last week what I wanted you to do was to see what this seamless world of Aristotelian hierarchy and logic looked like, this is the week in which we watch it fall to pieces. It begins to crack in 1543 with Nicolaus Copernicus and Copernicus's revolutions of the heavenly bodies, an inquiry into how the planets actually behaved. And Copernicus's conclusion was that in fact the, the planets don't move in, in perfect circular orbits. They, they don't move that way. In fact, what's more, it's very unlikely that the Earth is something that they orbit around. Rather, the Earth is one of the planets and moves in an unpredictable fashion along with them. Do you, do you see what Copernicus was doing? By introducing irregularity into his observations of the planets and the heavenly bodies, he was calling the whole hierarchical structure into question. It begins with Copernicus, but it, it continues even more with Galileo. And Galileo, in 1610, with the starry messenger, reveals how using, for just about the first time, this new Dutch invention, the telescope, he trains the telescope on the moon. And what does he see? When he looks through the telescope at the moon, does Galileo see a perfectly round ball, which has to be a perfectly round ball because it's superior to the, to the irregular Earth. Does he look at the moon and see a perfectly round ball? No. He looks at the moon, he sees mountains, sees irregularities, jagged edges. He looks at the moon and it's a mess. So much for perfection. But if the moon is not perfect from being in a superior position to the earth, then what about the whole idea of hierarchy? About the superior relation of something higher to something lower? And Galileo is by no means the first to draw these kinds of conclusions any more than Copernicus was, really. The real avalanche begins with Sir Isaac Newton and the publication of his Principia Mathematica in 1687. And in the Principia, Newton lays out in mathematical formulae how the heavenly bodies actually move. The universe can no longer be understood as a hierarchy. Rather, the universe is a dynamic system that is in flux. And that flux obeys 
not relationships of hierarchy. It simply obeys natural laws like gravity. You no longer discover what nature is like by reading authorities and applying logic. Rather, you go by experience and you apply reason. And that will tell you what physical reality is like. So that in 1620, Sir Francis Bacon, in his Novum Organum, the new instrument, tells us that the best demonstration by far is not logic. It's not authority. It's experience. That is what will tell you what truth and knowledge are. The search for truth begins to turn inward. Instead of looking at Aristotle and applying logic, the search for truth now moves inside people's own understandings and speculation. And you see this most especially in René Descartes, the French 17th century philosopher, in his Discourse on Method. Descartes resolves never to accept anything for true which I did not clearly know to be such. That is to say, carefully to avoid precipitancy and prejudice and to comprise nothing more in my judgment than what was presented to my mind so clearly and distinctly as to exclude all ground of doubt. What does this mean? This means I am going to doubt everything. I'm going to take nothing on authority. I want to find my way to truth. I can't accept anyone else's word for it, much less Aristotle's. So what am I going to do? I'm going to use doubt as my method. And doubt is what will assist me in the discovery of truth. And he believes he does. Because after he has doubted everything, the one thing he discovers that he cannot doubt is that he is doubting. And that is what he sums up in his famous formula, cogito ergo sum. He can't doubt that he's doubting. Therefore, he has just demonstrated by reason that he exists. He has to exist. Why? Because he's doubting. You can't doubt if you don't exist. I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. Notice something earth-shaking about this. He discovers this without any reference to Aristotle, without any reference to authority. He discovers it purely on his own. There is no appeal to authority, only to reason. Now that's what's happening in England and France in the 17th century. At Harvard, it's still a little different. Harvard, through much of the 17th century, is still teaching the traditional logic and will continue to do so into the 1680s. Just to give you an example, Charles Morton's A System of Logic. This is a textbook approach to how to use logic on authority. So Morton begins his system of logic by laying out certain assumptions 
And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, how do you know those assumptions are true? Answer, because Aristotle said so. Now, you might want to take a step beyond that and say, well, you know, who is this Aristotle person? At this point, you get a finger pointed out and you say, you should know who Aristotle is. No one questions Aristotle. Ooh, okay, okay. Except that after a while, people are not going to say, okay. But before the 1680s at Harvard, that's not there yet. Now, Morton's system of logic begins with assumptions based on authorities. And then what does he do? He takes those assumptions and he uses logic to introduce dichotomies into those propositions, into those assumptions. And when you use dichotomies to open them up, then you begin to discover things about them. Now, if hearing me say that, you begin to wonder, wait a minute, doesn't that sound like the Puritan sermon technique of uses, doctrine, and applications? The answer is bingo, you've got it. Now you know where that sermon format came from. Now, for, for, for Morton, what you are going to educate people for at Harvard is to take things on authority and to use dichotomies to break open the secrets of thinking. So to give you one example, all knowledge, says Morton, all knowledge is either, okay, here comes the dichotomy, either extraordinary by immediate inspiration, in other words, you get it directly from God, or knowledge is ordinary. You think, wow, I never thought about knowledge that way. I always thought knowledge was one word. I always thought knowledge was one thing. Ah, and Morton is licking his chops and saying, ah, see, you've just learned something now. Now you learn that there's two kinds of knowledge. Now, there's no way you can do more with extraordinary knowledge because if God gives it to you directly, there it is. You're not going to question it and quibble with it and try to find footnotes for it. But if it's ordinary knowledge, all right, can we apply a dichotomy there and find out something more about ordinary knowledge? Sure we can. Because ordinary knowledge can be divided into knowledge which comes by instinct or knowledge which is acquired. Instinct, well, you could say that is a knowledge you might acquire every time you get hungry. You feel hungry. How do you satisfy it? With food. Ah, you see, your instinct is leading you to knowledge. But instinct, of course, doesn't lead you to every species of knowledge. Sometimes knowledge has to be acquired. That's why you're spending four years at Harvard in the 17th century. You've got to acquire knowledge. Now, what kind of, what kind of acquired knowledge is there? Well, the bases of acquired knowledge are either going to be in philology, about language, or philosophy. And if we apply dichotomous thinking to philosophy, then philosophy can be divided into logic and all the other arts and sciences. What a wonderful scheme of things. What a wonderful way of acquiring knowledge. You can sit here and apply dichotomies this way, breaking open these assumptions and these propositions, and you never have to get out of your chair and go out and test them in the real world, right? Very convenient. But that was the way it worked. 
In fact, the very notion of going out and testing them in, quote unquote, the real world, would be looked upon as something strange. What are you, some kind of kook? No, no. You, 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 you begin with assumptions and you use a dichotomous method, a logical method to break them open, and applying that to authority would yield you, look at this harvest of understanding that you now have. Or maybe have. Let's try another example. Let's take philosophy, all right? How can we apply a dichotomous method to philosophy in the model of Morton's system of logic? Well, the philosophy can be practical philosophy, or it can be not impractical philosophy. We all think philosophy is impractical. Oh, no, 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 big mistake. Philosophy is how we live and breathe, right? Philosophy can either be practical or speculative. Now, speculative philosophy, what could that possibly mean? Well, use the dichotomous method. Speculative philosophy can be natural physics, mathematics, metaphysics. And under mathematics, break open mathematics, you get geometry and arithmetic. And you could do breaking open with the others as well. Or practical philosophy. Practical philosophy can either be economics or politics or ethics. Look at what you've learned and you haven't even stirred out of the classroom. The application of logic to authority. That was the principle on which a Harvard education is built, at least until the 1680s. Harvard begins to follow the train of this new philosophy, as it's called. And the new philosophy is what is used as a term to describe Galileo, Newton, Descartes, especially Descartes. This new philosophy gets its first beachhead at Harvard with William Brattle's Compendium of Logic in the 1680s. William Brattle was invited to serve as a tutor at Harvard in 1685. Now, the term tutor sounds like someone who helps you with remedial education. In the 17th century, at Harvard, the term tutor was the equivalent of professor. You had a president of Harvard, and then serving under the president were the people who did the work of the actual instructional faculty, and those were the tutors. Well, Brattle is invited to serve as a tutor at Harvard. And Brattle brings a very different logic to work at Harvard. In his Compendium of Logic, he says, we are taught by the light of nature that we must lay aside all the prejudices of infancy and youth, for in that they crept into our minds antecedent to a due search and examination by reason. The only rule which we can go by in discovering truth is a clear and distinct perception. Oh, wait a minute, clear and distinct, that's Descartes. How do you get clear and distinct ideas? By doubt as the method. The only rule which we can go by in discovering truth is a clear and distinct perception. Those are loaded terms. Anyone reading them in 1685 would immediately have jumped up and said, aha, He's introducing something new into the life of Harvard, which he was. 
or a perception that excludes all doubt. Ooh, there's the Cartesian method again. For it is impossible for us to err whilst we frame such judgments concerning things as are agreeable to our clear perceptions. Wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to frame our understanding according to Aristotle. No, we are supposed, says Brattle, to frame our understanding according to clear and distinct ideas. And how do we get clear and distinct ideas? By doubt. This upsets people. Conservative-minded New England Puritans saw this move as an intellectual sellout, a betrayal, not just of Aristotle, but of the whole principle of hierarchy and authority. They saw that this would make the earth tremble. So what do they do? They establish what I can only describe as a great American pattern. They walk out and establish a different college. They do this in Connecticut with funding from Elihu Yale. So guess what the name of this new college is? Yale. But you know, <laughs> not even Yale is proof against the blandishments of this new philosophy. And by the 1720s, it too has made a lodgment into the curriculum at Yale, especially in the teaching of the tutors, Timothy Cutler and Samuel Johnson, who in fact are forced to resign and who leave Yale in what's called the Great Apostasy of 1722. Oh yes, quite a great commotion about this new philosophy. But despite Harvard and despite Yale, there was nothing that really could be done to stop this. What we are talking about here is the first arrival in the American context of what we call the Enlightenment. Now this is a term which only gets applied to this years later by Immanuel Kant. He calls it the Aufklärung. An enlightenment, an enlightening of people's minds, a new way of thinking. And this enlightenment in America changes all the rules of the intellectual game. The dominant religious practice of this enlightenment becomes deism. And the most famous example of deism in America is the man who was, after all, the most famous American of the 18th century, and that was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was born in Boston in 1706. He's born in the environment of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But times have changed a great deal. He emigrates to Philadelphia in 1723. He had been, his father, by the way, was a tallow chandler. And he had been apprenticed as a youth to his older brother, James, who published a newspaper, not a particularly popular newspaper, in Boston. Working for James was not a particularly pleasant experience for young Benjamin, so he decides to run away. 
he is a fugitive. I mean, legally speaking, if James Franklin had wanted to pursue his brother and have him dragged back legally to Boston, he could have done it. But James probably did conclude that it wasn't worth the time, the money, and the trouble. So Benjamin Franklin arrives in Philadelphia in 1723, an environment that he finds much more congenial. This is not a Puritan town, Philadelphia. Not by any stretch of the imagination. And there he establishes himself as the premier printer in North America. He publishes a newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. He publishes an almanac, Poor Richard's Almanac. He actually invents franchise marketing in America because he's so successful operating out of his print shop in Philadelphia that he's able to license people who had worked for him to move to other places, set up their own version of a Gazette newspaper and their own version of a print shop and pay him royalties back. He has a wide variety of intellectual interests none of which look like 17th century Harvard. He's one of the founders of the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, of the Library Company of Philadelphia, of the Academy of Philadelphia, which will eventually grow up to become the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. And then, having done all this, he retires at age 42. That's a good deal, isn't it? He retires at age 42 to devote himself to what really interests him, and that is the pursuit of science. He becomes a transatlantic sensation after a series of experiments that he performs with electricity, and which he publishes in 1751 in his Experiments and Observations on Electricity made at Philadelphia by Mr. Benjamin Franklin. You're thinking, oh, isn't that interesting? That's a nice little hobby he's got, fooling around with electricity. Understand what electricity meant in this context. Electricity was a power that could only function according to very specific laws. There wasn't anything about it that required Aristotle, that required logic, that required hierarchy. Oh, no, 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 no. Nothing of the sort. Electricity looked to be a power that seemed to have nothing that proceeded from God and the heavens, nothing that moved up from the earth itself. Rather, electricity seemed to be an almost entirely autonomous source of power. Franklin is famous for an experiment he is said to have performed in 1752, his so-called kite and key experiment, where he goes out in the middle of a thunderstorm, sends up a kite with a key dangling on it, and attracts a bolt of lightning. I have some doubt, and some other people have expressed some doubts as to whether he literally did that, because if you do that yourself, I don't want to be anywhere near you. Someone who sends up a kite and an electrical storm with a key on it is asking to be electrocuted. So he may, in fact, have been offering us, uh, you know, something of a, a, an elaborated story. Important thing, though, to see from it was this. 
Why did electricity strike certain targets, shall we say? For centuries before, the understanding had been that electricity, at least in the form of lightning, that was the work of God. And it was God executing vengeance on evildoers. And that is why the legend was that in the middle of an electrical storm, if you wanted the, if you wanted the lightning to, to cease, you, you would go up and ring the church bell because that would disperse the lightning. That would satisfy the wrath of God. But what would happen if you sent up a kite with a key and that drew the lightning? Oh, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the wrath of God. It simply seems to be that you sent up a piece of metal and the lightning behaved like ordinary electricity and there wasn't anything more to say about it. So even if the literal experiment did not happen, the rationale of it pointed in a very different direction. There's Franklin with his kite and key, at least according to a painting. And whether it happened, all right. I don't think it would have been particularly wise for him to have reached up and grabbed hold of the key at the moment the lightning is striking, but all right, that's another story. What this moved Franklin towards was a religion that looked anything like anything but Puritanism. Instead, it moves him to deism. So we have to ask the question, what is deism? Deism could be simply said to be the religion of the, the favorite religion of the Enlightenment. Because it dispensed with all the notions of hierarchy and logic and so on like that that had been inherited from the centuries. But what deism also does is to reduce the actual function of religion to the bare minimum. And Franklin spells this out himself. He lays out the basic elements of his religion. They come down to six items. And those six items are that there is a God who made all things. All right? Everything that has come into being has come into being because God made them. Second, he governs the world by his providence. Things happen in the world according to the way God wants them to happen and the pattern that God has set out but only by a pattern, only by law. Third, this God ought to be worshipped by adoration, prayer, and thanksgiving. Not anything more than that. Not anything more than that. That the most acceptable service to God is doing good to man. Enlightenment religion is less about the relationship between God and human beings and more about the relationship between human beings and human beings. That the soul is immortal. That's his fifth point, which he doesn't explain. Finally, that God will certainly reward virtue and punish vice either here or hereafter. No mention, no mention of the Bible, no mention of Jesus, no mention of any religious figure. No notion of an atonement, no sacrifice, nothing like that. No. God will reward virtue and punish vice. If you're good, you get rewarded. If you're bad, you get punished. 
nothing more than that. He knows if you've been good or bad, so be good for goodness sake. So we have God reduced almost to the vision of a Santa Claus. But that is Franklin's deism. As I say, deism becomes the favorite religion of the Enlightenment, the favorite religion of doubters, except that in the midst of this Enlightenment comes a counter-Enlightenment, an enormous reaction, a gigantic response, a reawakening of the most intense and aggressive forms of Christian piety. And it happens across the boards. Not just in Protestant England or Puritan New England or Catholic France or Lutheran Germany or any place that can be identified with a single particular denomination. No. This counter-enlightenment takes place across the boards. And we see it emerge, for instance, in Catholic France, in the form of Jansenism, whose particular apostle was the mathematician, Blaise Pascal. Pascal probably today is best known if his name conjures up any knowing for its connection with computer languages. Well, the reason for that is that Blaise Pascal is the man who invents the first calculating machine. He was a mathematician of extraordinary gifts, but he was also a man of the most profound piety. He has a religious experience of the most extraordinary sort, a dark night of the soul, after which he concludes that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. In other words, he comes to exactly the opposite conclusion from Franklin. In England, this counter-enlightenment response is seen in religious communities like the non-jurors, people who could not take the oath. They, were, they, ab, they would not abjure the old House of Stuart, which is going to take me into a l very deep rabbit hole explaining the politics and religion of a 17th and 18th century England, which I'm not going to do at this moment. But they're simply called the non-jurors. And their most famous name, the one least the most famous associated with them is William Law, man of the most extraordinary piety, and probably, probably their most famous convert, or at least almost convert, was the great philologist Samuel Johnson. But not just the non-jurors, also in England, the Methodists, which begin as a party within the Church of England, but find the Church of England too staid and too set in its ways. And so under the leadership of John Wesley, they make the Church of England almost too hot to handle. Wesley will always remain part of the Church of England, but many of his followers will, after his death, 
set up as an entirely separate denomination, the Methodists. Why? Because they were understood to have a method of piety. That was not a term they adopted themselves. That was used on them as a term of abuse. These people who tried to be religious by method. And then there were evangelicals in the Church of England itself, maybe the most famous of which was John Newton, a one-time slave trader who abandoned the slave trade, repented, and probably is best known today for writing the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. All of this erupts at the same time as you find the Enlightenment and Deism and Franklin and Descartes. And in New England, yes, you see it there too. You see it through a renewal of the old Puritan energy. You see it in figures like Solomon Stoddard, the pastor of the Congregational Church of Northampton, Massachusetts, in Western Mass. What Stoddard insists is the Spirit of the Lord must be poured out upon the people, else religion will not revive. And reviving religion is what Stoddard was most interested in. The Enlightenment and the Counter-Enlightenment were very different movements. And they certainly had very different ends in view. A Benjamin Franklin and a Solomon Stoddard and a John Wesley were clearly not singing from the same hymnal, so to speak. Nevertheless, both the Enlightenment and the Counter-Enlightenment did have certain things in common, which is why they're both happening simultaneously. Both the Enlightenment and the Counter-Enlightenment, both the Deists and the Evangelicals, are resistant to hierarchy, especially in the churches. They are rebels against established systems in very different ways, but they're both resistant to hierarchy. Both share an impulse to find a more authentic basis for belief. Both of them agree. Get rid of the system of authority. Get rid of the system of Aristotle. What matters is experience. Now, in Newton's exercise of things, the experience he was talking about was mathematical observation of how physical bodies in the universe operated. For the counter-enlightenment, the key to that authentic belief that is based on the experience of God, the experience of religion, the experience of grace, a religious experience. And both the Enlightenment and the Counter-Enlightenment want to explore how minds come to know ideas. How do we know what we know? How do we know the way to God? We're not going to find it in Aristotle. We're not going to find it in hierarchy. Well, then how are we going to find it? In that respect, the counter-enlightenment and the enlightenment share the same spirit and breathe the same atmosphere.
How do people know things? Enlightenment philosophy invented three basic responses to the question of how minds know anything. This is what we call epistemology. Epistemology, how, how you know things, the process, the means, the way in which minds know things. One of those responses was simple materialism. And this is associated with Thomas Hobbes. You want to know how minds know things? They know things by physical sensation. You have an object exterior to yourself. It comes and whacks you on the head. And you have an experience of being whacked on the head. And that tells you about the material substance that just whacked you. Also suggests that maybe you get out of the way of it the next time. But then there was representationalism. Representationalism said, no, 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 that's too crude. Materialism is too crude. What really happens when minds know things is this. The physical sensation comes along and whacks you, yes. But then what happens? The physical sensation generates ideas. People don't just respond to physical sensations. They think about them. They have concepts of them. When something whacks them on the head, they say, was that a cherry pie or was that a baseball bat? You think about it because, believe me, that's going to make a big difference in how you respond. If it's a cherry pie, you say, oh, good, bring me some more. If it's a baseball bat, that could be a little different. No, physical sensation generates ideas. And those ideas represent material substance. The ideas in your mind say, mm, looks like a cherry pie or mm, looks like a baseball bat. And this is the position that we associate most with John Locke in his essay concerning human understanding in 1690. And then a third path, then a third path, is the path of immaterialism. This path said that minds only know ideas. That's all that minds can know are ideas. Minds can't know cherry pies. All that minds can know are ideas of cherry pies. Why? Because they're minds. That's all that they can do. Now that means that there's no guarantee that your idea that you've just been hit by a cherry pie means that there really is a cherry pie out there. You have the idea of that. And, you know, perhaps you might want to act on the basis of that idea, but you don't have any guarantee. Why? Because you can't get outside yourself. You can't get outside your mind and test it. And this is a point of view associated most with this gentleman here, Bishop George Barclay. I have a little footnote here talking about John Locke. Locke, I say, was a representational realist. Our ideas can only represent objects, but the objects really exist. That's what distinguishes Locke from Barclay. But here are three basic positions that the Enlightenment has to wrestle with in trying to understand how you know things. Now, what has this got to do? What has this got to do with deism and religion? Just this. Nobody put Enlightenment epistemology 
more successfully to serve the goals of the counter-enlightenment than Jonathan Edwards. And that is why we're reading Edwards this week. Jonathan Edwards was born on October 5th, 1703. He was the son of Timothy Edwards, who was the pastor of the Congregational Church of East Windsor, Connecticut. His mother was Esther Stoddart Edwards. She was the daughter of the great Solomon Stoddart, the man in Northampton who had been calling for revival and renewal. So right away you begin to see there's a family connection here. Edwards goes up to Yale in 1718. Now you're saying, wait a minute, he was only 15. How did the admission staff at Yale allow that to happen? Well, for two reasons. One, there was no admission staff at Yale in 1718. Colleges and universities don't acquire things like that until much later. And it was very routine. For teenagers, and particularly if they were teenagers who had some evidence of intellectual gifts, or teenagers who had good connections, Edwards had both, it was very routine for someone who was 14 or 15 to go up to college at that point, to go up to Yale. Now remember, Yale was founded as a protest movement against Harvard's drift toward the new philosophy. Well, Edwards goes up to Yale, and what he finds there is an education at Yale that rests on the traditional Protestant scholastics. I mean, it's 1718, he goes up and he finds a curriculum that is about 100 years old. Because at Yale, and again, remember, Yale was founded as a protest against Harvard's drift to the new philosophy. At, at Yale, he will read the people we talked about last week, and that you read last week. William Ames, Adrian Hereboard, Francis Bergersteig. These are your traditional Protestant scholastics who believe that what you do is you accept certain assumptions and authority, and you use logic to open them up, and that tells you what truth is. So he goes there, and this is what he studies, but he also discovers through Yale's rector, Timothy Cutler, William Brattle's Cartesian New Logic, as well as the study of Mr. Locke and Sir Isaac Newton. So as much as Yale is founded as a conservative response to what's going on at Harvard, even at Yale they're reading the new philosophy. He graduates in 1722, dabbling in scientific essays, a little like Benjamin Franklin. He writes essays of his observations on spiders and insects. He begins keeping notebooks on epistemology and natural science. He's a young man with a real bent for the philosophical life but not just the philosophical life. He returns to Yale in 1724 to serve as a tutor, and there he has become committed to what really functions as immaterialism, as Bishop Barclay's answer to the question of how we know things. Because Edwards writes, that which is truly the substance of all bodies is the infinitely exact and precise and perfectly stable idea in God's mind. 
What is reality? What is the substance of all bodies? It is an idea in God's mind. How do we know it? By God communicating that idea to our minds. That is how we know what's there. Yes, we're talking immaterialism here. The young Edwards, though, is not going to stay at Yale. He's called to the Northampton church as an assistant to his grandfather Stoddard in February of 1727. And in 1729, after Stoddard's death, he will succeed his grandfather as the pastor of Northampton. One of the prestige pulpits of Massachusetts. Well, that was a fast scramble up the ladder. In 1731, he makes his colony-wide debut in the annual Boston Public Lecture. And there he makes it very clear that all of his thinking, all of his observations of nature, insects, spiders, all of his commitments to immaterialism are all going to be funneled in the same direction as his grandfather's demand for a revival of religion in New England. Edwards warns his hearers in the Boston Public Lecture of man's tendency to exalt himself and depend on his own power or goodness. We should be suspicious of that, Edwards says. We are deluding ourselves if we think that we can make ourselves good on our own. How different is this from Franklin talking about God simply rewarding virtue and vice? Mm-mm-mm. No, God's action does not depend on your virtue or your vice. God's action doesn't even depend on reason. God's action in your life depends on a sense of the heart, which immediately perceives a beauty, a divine and transcendent and most evidently distinguishing glory in God. Experience is the key. And in that respect, Edwards is as much a man of the Enlightenment as Newton and Franklin. In 1734, a very remarkable blessing of heaven fell on Northampton. A blessing that he describes in a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. This is followed in 1739 by a still larger revival in the Connecticut River Valley which is taken up in other places in British North America, especially in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And Edwards leads the pack, preaching in the summer of 1741 at Enfield, Connecticut, probably the most famous sermon preached in American history, and that is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he wants to talk not only about the necessity of religious experience, but he wants to trigger that experience by the vividness of the imagery in that sermon. And sure enough, revival blossoms into a great awakening. A great awakening which is aided by British evangelicals in general, and one of them, George Whitfield, in particular. George Whitfield is the greatest religious sensation the colonies have ever seen. He's an Englishman, but my goodness. I never saw in my life such attentive audiences as Mr. Whitfield's in New York 
wrote one observer. All he said was demonstration, life, and power. Note those words. He's preaching experience, not authority, experience. The people's eyes and ears hung upon his lips. They greedily devoured every word. He preached during four days, twice every day. He is of a sprightly, cheerful temper and acts and moves with great agility and life. The endowments of his mind are uncommon. His wit is quick and piercing, his imagination lively and florid. And as far as I can discern, both are under the direction of a solid judgment. He has a most ready memory and, I think, speaks entirely without notes. Ah, an evidence of sincerity of experience. He has a clear and musical voice and a wonderful command of it. He uses much gesture, but with great propriety. Every accent of his voice, every motion of his body speaks, and both are natural and unaffected. If his delivery be the product of art, it is certainly the perfection of it. What a sensation Whitfield made. The English actor David Garrick, famous Shakespearean, heard Whitfield preach and saw what he must have regarded as being kind of a professional member of the cast. Garrick said of, of Whitfield that he wished he could give 20 guineas, you know, the highest of English currency in those days, if he could only say, oh, the way Whitfield did. And Garrick once made the comment that Whitfield could throw an audience into a paroxysm just by the way he pronounced the word Mesopotamia. But Edwards remains the central theorist of this awakening. In 1741, he writes, distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. The next year, some thoughts concerning the present revival of religion. And in 1746, a treatise concerning the religious affections. Affections, not propositions, not assumptions, affections, the priority of experience. This awakening is resisted by Harvard, by Yale, by conservative clergy in New York and New England and Pennsylvania. And Whitfield's preaching splits the New England churches into old light and new light factions. In Pennsylvania and New Jersey, Scots-Irish Presbyterian immigrants, they also split after Whitfield's visit to Philadelphia in 1739 into new side and old side factions. The new side faction is led by Gilbert Tennant of the Second Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. In his sermon, The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry, he points the finger not at lay people and their need for religious experience. He points at the clergy and condemns them for lack of genuine experience. There is nothing that may more justly call forth our saddest sorrows and make all our powers and passions mourn in the most doleful accents, the most incessant, insatiable, and deploring agonies than the melancholy case of such who have no faithful ministry. This truth is set before our minds in a strong light in the words that I have chosen now to insist upon in which we have an account of our Lord's grief with the cause of it. Tennant founds the Log College in the Chamonix, Pennsylvania. This is for the instruction of new light 
Presbyterian ministers, new side Presbyterian ministers. And it is a school which eventually is reorganized and transferred to New Jersey to become the College of New Jersey in Princeton under the presidency of Aaron Burr, Sr. Not the Aaron Burr of the duel with Hamilton, but his father, Aaron Burr. Yes, this is, this is how Princeton gets founded. Princeton is one of these outposts of the Great Awakening. But the awakening begins to abate by 1742. The energy runs out of all that experience and as so often happens, Edwards's congregation in Northampton turns against him and dismisses him in 1750. He has to find a job and he finds it in Western Massachusetts, in Stockbridge, at a missionary outpost to the Mohegan Indians. And he becomes a preacher to the Mohegans. Quite a come down from being the pastor of Northampton, but he uses his time all the same. He turns to writing moral philosophy. And in 1754, he publishes Concerning the End for Which God Created the World, On the Nature of True Virtue, and then Freedom of the Will, and follows them, those up with a treatise on original sin in 1758. At the end of 1757, he's invited to become president of the College of New Jersey. His um, daughter had married Aaron Burr. And when Aaron Burr dies, the leadership of the college turns to Burr's father-in-law, to Edwards and invites him to become the president of Princeton. And he agrees. So Edwards leaves Massachusetts, where he spent so much of his life. And at the end of 1757, January of 1758, he comes here to Princeton to take up the job of Princeton, uh, as Princeton's president. He meets the senior class, rather much as we are met today, like a seminar hands out the questions that they will be deliberating on for their next session and never meets with them again. He takes the vaccine for smallpox, but his frame is too weakened to sustain the impact of it. And he dies in January of 1758, actually in the spring of 1758. He continues, though, to be influential through his disciples, Joseph Bellamy and Samuel Hopkins, the authors of what becomes known as the New Divinity. And we'll be reading a little bit of Samuel Hopkins as we move on further in this seminar. But here in America in the 18th century, 
What I want you to see are two remarkable eruptions. One is an intellectual rebellion that is rooted in the changes that are taking place in European thought. A rebellion we most often associate with the Enlightenment, of which Benjamin Franklin is the primary example. But you also see here in America this second upsurge of this great awakening of religion, whose paramount example is Jonathan Edwards. And you can say, I think, without too much exaggeration, that Franklin and Edwards really become the two primary figures that explain these contours of American thought. That in the end of the day, most Americans really wind up either being of the mentality of Franklin or the mentality of Edwards in one fashion or another. And that's not, of course, true in every detail, in every instance. But there is a long view in which that is something we have to reckon with. That's a 30,000-foot view of things. <laughs> Both of these occur together simultaneously, side by side. Both of them are a rebellion against centuries of tradition and logic and authority. And both of them are going to lay the grounds for yet another revolution also a revolution against hierarchy, also a revolution which appeals to experience, but it will be a political revolution. And it will make a new republic, a novus ordo seclorum. All right, well, we've come to the end of our session. On Wednesday, we will be dealing directly with the texts that we're looking at. Franklin, Edwards, preachers and deists. And we will be looking for how they are different from each other, but we'll also be looking for their commonalities. But that we will deal with on Wednesday. Thank you all. Check out American History TV either on our website at c-span.org forward slash AHTV or on C-SPAN 2 every weekend from 8 a.m. Saturday through 8 a.m. on Sunday. Explore our nation's past with American History TV.